Amen, amen. Good morning. It is, you know, don't you just love this part of Texas weather where it's like it can't decide what it wants to be. It's like a little schizophrenic, right? Like it's like we're going to be awesome one day and then it's going to be super cold the next two days. And and there you go. Well, so glad that you're here. My name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors. Thanks so much for joining us online as well. Glad that we are gathered together. Uh, another big week for Equip on Wednesday night. Um, gosh, it was uh, another good conversation. And in the student side, we focused on variants and just differences in the Bible. And, and, and what we walked away with uh, was, um, gosh, that, you know, most of the copy errors, like the majority of the errors in the scripture is they've left a comma out, or this word was changed from this part of the sentence to another part. And so it's interesting for us to, to interact with that and really how the Scripture, the Bible, doesn't really run away from some of those things, and, it, and then it stays right there. And so um, next week's going to be another good one. It's our third or fourth week. If you haven't joined, we'd love for you to do so. Last week in the sermon, we talked about the three ministries of Jesus, his prophetic ministry, his kingly ministry, and his priestly ministry, and as we transition to the rest of chapter 1 in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews doubles down on the comparison and the contrast of Jesus' divinity and then the heavenly uh, uh, people beings like angels, as we'll see here in just a second. And there's a bunch of, bunch of Old Testament references this morning and that the author is quoting, so we're going to spend some time, especially in Psalm 2 this morning, as we glean truths from the New Testament text of Hebrews versus the and how the Old Testament text is going to help us do that. And so um, our look at the Old Testament is going to focus our attention on the New Testament this morning. And I'll share just a few um, truths this morning, but just one, the Bible is trustworthy to be used to reveal truths about itself. Like it speaks to the truth. That's something we learned on Wednesday night last week and that we'll continue to press into. It's just this idea that the Bible, while at times seems like it's in conflict with itself, actually isn't in conflict with itself. So, there you go. There's my intro. Um, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 5. It's going to be on the board behind us. And this is... A little repetitive, it's a little dense, but I think um, this will be helpful for us as we continue on. And so we ended last week in verse 4 saying that Jesus is much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, talking about the, the angels. And then we go right into verse 5, which says this, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or, again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And your Lord laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will, but you remain. 
page turn always in the worst place. I swear it's like a running joke at this point. They will all wear out like a garment. Verse 12, like a robe, you will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. In verse 13. And to which angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they all not ministering spirits sent out to serve for the, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And I just want to say just in verse 14, like those to serve for the sake of those to inherit, like that's us, right? And so I just love just this, this wonderful just few verses of where the author of Hebrews is, is coordinating and kind of wrapping all this this, this uh, honor and glory to who Jesus is, and then he throws in just a little something for you and me as well. Obviously, it's all for us, but just that for the sake of those, you know, and, and, and as, as I was just kind of reflecting on this passage this morning, it's the, you know, you've ever had those strange moments where you interact with people and you're like, where did this person come from? Maybe it's in an airport, maybe it's in a coffee shop, and you have this interaction, and then, like, all of a sudden, they're gone. Like, you know, like, where do they go? I don't understand how that happened. Like, you know, and the Bible talks about how sometimes you entertain angels in that way. I just, that just made me think of that. But first thing, just as evident in the passage this morning, I want to highlight is we see that God speaks to different people differently. Right? He doesn't say the same thing to all of us all the time at the same time. And that's pretty evident in the passage this morning, how he's talking about how he talks about who Jesus is and, and the honor and the glory there, and then how he refer, how God talks to, about the angels. Um, and that's the point of Hebrews, right? And the point of chapter 1 is Jesus is differentiating between who he, or God's differentiating between who Jesus is and the angels. So as we'll see, how God directs the angels and talks about them is different how he speaks of Jesus and his role in the world. We see that, but and, and so the idea is like, well, is, is that confusing? I don't, you know, why does he do that? And the thing is, is, you know, it's biblical and it's godly because it leads to God receiving the most glory when he receives glory from different things and different people in different ways. That's good, right? God, we know God wants glory as God above all things. And God reigns supreme when we see how different things at different parts in their life and different places and different processes and different gifts and different skills and different motivations, how they all say, you know what, God, I'm trying to figure out where I fit in relation to you. We see that too, just as us, right? Like each of us have, we're unique and we have an identity that God's crafted in and hardwired in and we have different skills and a different mindset and different experiences and different perspectives and and how we could all kind of figure out how what it looks like to live life together in this menagerie of people and experiences and perspectives then that's God receives all that glory because he sits above all those things right I just love that and you know and Again, as I'm just reflecting on this, that you know, the biggest lie in the garden way back, you know, we're almost at the end of the Bible here in Hebrews, way back at the beginning where where the serpent tempts Eve and Adam and they eat the fruit, and the lie was, No, you have to be God to understand God, and He's holding out on us. That's the biggest lie when actually we don't have to be like God to glorify God. In turn, we don't have to be the same people to glorify God either. I just love that picture, like there's freedom there, like God is so good that he 
moves us together, but we also have an individual part of our walk as well. So it's good, and it's biblical, and it's godly, and just like Jesus and the angels, God speaks the same message of his salvation and his glory to his people in different ways. And as I said, he gifts each of us uniquely with skills and perspectives and roles and thoughts and, and process. And let me just say, like, I don't know about you, but like sometimes, you know, like my neighbor's front yard is better than my front yard. Did anybody ever have yard envy or plant envy or flower bed envy or car envy or grade envy, right? I remember there was a kid in my class who was smarter than me. Well, actually, they just tried harder. I don't think they were smarter than me, but whatever. Um, you know, when I had grade envy, I was like, gosh, why can't I make that grade, right? And the teacher was like, well, if you do your homework, that would probably help, you know? And um, But it's funny, isn't it? Like, all of us are needed. All of us are needed in the faith. In God's kingdom. All of us are wanted by God in his kingdom. All of us have a purpose in God's kingdom. And so, I don't know about you, but when you think about just the other side of the fence or all those things, right? Maybe your family isn't where you wanted it to be. And I had a meeting with pastors this week, which was fun. and just from all over the city. And we were all kind of reflecting on... You know, the question was, how are things going? You know, when you put like five or six pastors in a room who are used to running their mouths for a long time, right? Like it's the, everybody shares. And, you know, and I think what if I could boil down that conversation, it was just like, I'm not sure where we are is where we thought we'd be in 24 as we were maybe even last year. I just, you know, and so like for me, like I just took great freedom there because while we're all the same, we're all different, but yet God still leads and guides. And so that brings us to truth number two. And I just want to say this, no matter where you are, whether you feel close to God, you feel far away, whether you feel like you have it all together or you don't have it all together at all, right? There's this peace that our calling as Christ followers is to glorify God as ourselves, not as someone else. Our calling, your calling is to glorify God as who you are. Not the neighbor down the street or the, the person that was in your life 10 years ago. or It's to be you because God wants you to be you. He died for you to be you. He's made you to be you and not to be anyone else. And so it's interesting just in this text in Hebrews how it's just this idea of like how do we come to grips with who Jesus is in relation to all the other experiences. God reigns supreme and that is best seen when humans glorify God differently according to his gifting, not someone else's ability or what we would think we should be doing. Can I say that again? Because I think we need to hear that this morning. In the rat race of trying to figure it out and win and get first and, and all the things, God is best and glorified best when we see humans glorifying him according to their gifting, not according to someone else's ability. So wherever your ability is, like wherever you are, like that's where you are and that's okay. And so if that's true, right, if that's true about us, this is also true about Jesus. How does Jesus hold the three ministries we spoke of last week, right, his prophetic ministry, his kingly ministry, 
in his priestly ministry in the first four verses of chapter one? How does he hold all that in attention? Because Jesus had all the ability in the world, and he did do it. He did it all perfectly. Well, it's verse five. Let me read verse five and six again, and maybe this will take some of the pressure off you and I, because just like Jesus is begotten, we were begotten too for a purpose. Verse 5, for which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And so this, these two verses are looking at two things. One, God fathers there, and then Jesus perfectly embodies what it looks like to be a son. We call that sonship. There's fatherhood on behalf of God the Father, and then there's sonship on behalf of Jesus. I just love that picture, this picture that God said, no, here you are, I've, I've put you in the world, you're the firstborn among all things. In Jesus, you know, unlike us, where like I'm not the perfect son, I'm not the perfect dad or husband, uh, but Jesus is the perfect everything, and he reflects that in his sonship and who he is as son of God the Father works its way out into those ministries, which causes angels to worship him. I just love that. It's like, let all God's angels worship him, and not just God's angels, but like all of creation, right? We were talking about that this past week. Like, what is some, what are some of the literary devices that the Bible uses? And someone, they, someone said metaphor, I said simile, and then they all yelled at me because I got simile and metaphor mixed up. Um, but then someone said personification, and I was like, but doesn't the Bible talk about how even the rocks will cry out in yearning of who he is and glorifying his name? You ever just looked at the ocean and, and just felt like you were the smallest little speck of anything in the midst of something bigger? Like even the rocks will cry out. And so God the Father, just this picture, so like no matter where you are, the week that you've had, the Father perfectly fathers he will not reject or leave us alone. He doesn't throw us into the deep end of the pool, right? Without teaching us how to swim. And the sun perfectly embodies that sonship but causes worship. And just so you know, interaction with Jesus at any level, whether it's this morning or in prayer or in worship or in community, like that is worship. Any kind of interaction with Jesus leads to worship. Back to verse 5, it says, I will be to him a father. The author is quoting Psalm 2. We're going to spend a few minutes in Psalm 2 this morning. And, and the danger about Hebrews is could slow us down as we progress through the book is that there is so much Old Testament reference here that I don't want to just skip over it. I can't hit everything because we'll be here till like the next 10 years and you're going to be hate, you know, you're going to hate Hebrews and me in the process, but I'm trying to pick and choose what's good. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 2, and I want to look at the quote directly in the context of the passage of Psalm 2, starting in verse 1, just 12 verses. The reign of the Lord's anointed. Why do the nations rage, it says, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, there's my little mark, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have, there it is, begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's the promise. We'll be there in just a second. In just a few points, like the nations rage and plot in vain against God and his anointed, and, you know, when I think about just why does that happen, well, I don't have to look much further than myself, right? I mean, like in my heart, in my flesh, as, as, I'm, as I'm being sanctified and being made more like Christ, I rage and plot in vain against God because I re- resist, ignore, or fight against God's plan in my life. Now, don't we do that, Right? And that's what happens with the nations and kings. They resist, ignore, or fight against God's plan. And just this, I want to point out uh, the word vain in verse 1. The, let me read it again. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And that word vain in the Hebrew means to empty. It literally means to empty. And so when nations and kings resist God, or when I resist God and His anointed, they try to hold on to their power. I try to hold on to the control of my life, right? Like, you know, it is like the harder you hold on to something, the quicker it leaves your hand. There's just that idea. It's the same thing with kings and nations. But instead of holding on to something and trying to white-knuckle it and force it the way you want to force it, the word vain actually means they empty themselves of it. Isn't that interesting? I think that's really interesting because all positions and power and authority, no matter where you sit in the org chart of life, comes from God. And we know Jesus reinforces this idea. He says, hey, whoever wants to hold on to their life will lose it. But those who give it up willingly will save it. And it's the same thing here typically think of a vain person, right, as someone who is filled with self-love, but looking at something in the context of, of Psalm 2 is the vain person isn't actually a person who loves themselves. It's the person who is trying to hold on to the things in their life, and they end up pouring it out like a drink as opposed to actually adding to it. And it makes sense, right? When I think about times in my life where I've had these moments where I've in vain or just not in a great place, the more I try to hold on to something that I think I need, the less I do. And so in regards to kings and nations, and, and the more they try to hold on to or resist it, nor fight against God's plan, the less they, the less they have of it. But looking at something done in vain doesn't fill that person. It removes that thing from them. And then just, you know, the Bible's kind of humorous sometimes. It's, you know, I don't often think of God this way. He says, you know, he who sits in heaven laughs and holds them in derision. Like when I think about that, like usually when I slip up, I usually think God's kind of angry at me. I haven't really thought much about when I resist it nor or fight against his plan. I don't really think of him as like, ha there's Tyler doing it again, being silly, right? Or trying to think he could do it his own way. But I was just like, 
Well, I mean, it's in, it's in Psalm 2. I guess that happens from time to time. Um, and I just want to think, too, is that, you know, when our natural reaction is, is when we step out of God's plan is that he's angry or wrathful. You know, God encompasses so much more than just that. He's also loving, right? He also wants us to come back toward him. He's also gentle, right? Like there's those moments in those seasons where we need a gentle hand. There's those moments and seasons where we need a, a harder hand. But what I love is, is God has exactly what we need in the moment, whatever that is. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes that's easy. Sometimes that's tears. Sometimes that's laughter. Sometimes it's anger. Sometimes it's love. But we know that God does all things for the good of those people, of his people who are called according to his purpose, even when we can't see it in the moment. And so just, you know, when I do dumb things, I, I can't help but think he goes, well, there's Tyler doing dumb things again. But just this idea that kings and nations cannot resist God and his plan. Likewise, humans, his created, can't resist God's plan either. And so just this, this picture, we can either glorify God and his plan with our lives, or we can make it harder on ourselves by not following it. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, no matter where you are in your season, like, we've had those moments where we're like, we feel like we're in direct line with who God is and what God's up to. And then we've had those moments where we're just way outside the boundary of that. Which leads us to truth number three. It is better to follow God's plan than to resist it. It is. It's better to follow God's plan than resist it. And I think the rub for you and for me, at least for myself, is this. is like, Do I trust God that he's going to be good toward me even when I can see what following him means? what it's going to cost me, what kind of trouble is it going to stir up in my life. But I know it's better to follow God's plan than resist it. And I'm not saying God's plan is easy. Oftentimes, it's hard. And it takes us to places we don't want to go. Doesn't it? Isn't that what God's plan does? Isn't that how he sanctifies his people and makes us more like his son? Is that he holds the mirror up to our lives and he takes us to places where we can't ignore the reflection in the mirror anymore? That's hard, and it feels like death, doesn't it? But what I do know is it's actually harder to be outside his plan. Because in his plan, we have hope. Apart from God, we don't have hope. And so, you know, for me, it's just like, well, it's going to be hard either way. I guess I'd rather have hope. Because <laughs> I certainly don't have it in myself to take, take care of all the problems in the world. Verse 7, back in Psalm 2. Again, here's a verse that the author of Hebrews is quoting. Let me say it again. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so I bring this up. Why is it important for the author of Hebrews to quote this psalm to his audience? It's an interesting one, isn't it? He's differentiating between who Jesus is and the angels. Why this psalm? Why this verse? One, it, it talks. It, it gives us inform, You know, it gives us an idea of what the Trinity looks like with God the Father, Jesus the Son, and then God the Holy Spirit. That's one, and affirms that. 
But then two, if you remember, the author of Hebrews is concerned most about highlighting and worshiping the supremacy of who Jesus is. That's the chief aim of the book of Hebrews, that Jesus is supreme. And so why choose Psalm 2? Well, because his audience is familiar with Psalm 2. They would have heard it. They would have understood it. They know this psalm. It's the second one out of the gate, right? It's the, you know, there's one and then there's two. It's the second one out of the gate. And so I just want to point out something. Psalm 1, if you're familiar with it at all, talks about those who love God's law and delight in him are like trees with deep roots, right? You ever held on in those seasons to God and, 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 and as, as, as much as you can, and it's like there's deep roots where you keep being refreshed with water and a dry land. That's what Psalm 1 says. He is like a tree, verse 3, it says, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. That's what it looks like. That's the benefit of following God. One, we get to know him. Two, we get to see him. Three, we're like trees planted by water, and our fruit of our lives yields in its season. So that's Psalm 1. And then he goes into Psalm 2, right? That's the foundation, right? And if Psalm 1 is the foundation of flourishing, delighting in who God is, then he talks about Psalm 2 and how God establishes kings and through God establishes rulers and peoples of the earth should flourish. That's the idea. There's the rub, right? You delight in God, you flourish. And then he gives an example in Psalm 2 of how we don't flourish when we don't delight in who God is. But make no mistake, God wants us to flourish, and we flourish best in Christ. That's what he wants. But then again, back to this equip thing, like what do you do when the Bible is a little, like a little scarce on details? It's interesting, isn't it? Like if, like if in Psalm 3, I'm just jumping ahead because it's not be on the board. It says, the Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son, or Absalom, his son. Like it identifies it. But if we notice in Psalm 2, we don't know who the psalmist is. So what do you do? Why would the author of Hebrews, who is unnamed, reference a psalm who is unnamed? How is that supposed to encourage us back to the equip thing on Wednesday nights? And this is funny. This is good. Turn your Bibles to Acts 4. Because you remember what I said when I started this message way ago. Like the Bible is trustworthy to reveal truths about itself, right? Either we believe that or we don't. Doesn't mean we follow everything it says, but at least we have that understanding. So Acts 4, starting in verse 23. This is the author of Acts writing to people after Jesus' ascension who are starting the church. So this is like the birthplace of the church. And so... The apostles, the disciples of Jesus were just arrested. They were just freed. And they were told to not speak of Jesus again. And in verse 23, it says this. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, I just love this. So, you know, I mean, like, persecution's a thing. I get it. We're all persecuted for something. I get persecuted for no hair. It's okay. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together. I figured you'd laugh more at that. I'm sorry. Someone said, does your head ever get cold? I'm like, eh, sometimes. 
Yeah, there you go. Anyway, I digress. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord. Remember what Psalm 2 is saying. God is sovereign. Now the author of Acts is saying God is sovereign. Sovereign, excuse me, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. See if this sounds familiar to you. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? There's that word vain again. And the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So, Psalm 2 goes unidentified as by its authorship, but the author of Acts identifies this psalmist as David, even though it doesn't say it in Psalm 2. The Bible is trustworthy to interpret and reveal truths about other parts of the Bible. So, again... Why this psalm? Why is the author of Hebrews using this? And it's this, because David is like the picture of the right kingship in the nation of Israel. The author is David, and it's about David's kingship. So we have a passage in Hebrews quoting a psalm that Acts 2 verifies its authorship. Isn't that fun? I didn't know that before this week. I didn't. I just didn't pay much attention. Um, which brings us to truth number four. When Scripture seems like it's in conflict with, with itself, how do you square God of the Old Testament with Jesus in the New Testament? But Scripture always agrees with Scripture. I believe that. And so here is why truth number four is important. And again, back to the question. Why Psalm 2? Because you have a Jewish author writing to Jewish Christians, trying to encourage them in the persecution that they are about to face or are facing. And the passage is about both. Uh, well, it's a, the psalm is about David and applying to the kingly ministry of Jesus, right? The author of Hebrews has taken a psalm about David, who he, what he wrote, and applying it to the kingly ministry of Jesus. How could he do that? Because we know Jesus comes from David's line. If David's kingship is the best earthly example of a king of Israel, Jesus' kingship out of the Davidic line is the true and perfect Davidic king, right? You see that, right? Just like where you see you've got nations and, and, and rulers who rage against God's plan, just like I do, we do, right? There's my plan for my life versus what God's plans for my life is. You've got what God wants versus what's going on within the world. And then now the author is using the psalm quote to make the point that there's earthly kings in Jesus' kingly ministry, way back at the beginning of Hebrews 1 which is better and more trustworthy. Well, how do I know that? Why do I know that? It's verse 27 in Acts. One more verse, and then it'll kind of land the plane for us. Remember, they're in Jerusalem. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Jesus is the Davidic king. And so what I love about this in Psalm 2 is the passage is Psalm 2, excuse me, is the passage not just about David, it's also about Jesus. And so when you see dual fulfillment passages in the scriptures, we should pay attention because it doesn't just speak to the current reality, it also speaks to the future reality as well. Just like wherever you are in your life and whatever's going on in your world, today is not the defining moment of your of God's plan for your life and where you are in the world. There's also a future component to that too. 
So I love that. Just that picture. Just in Psalm 2, how we talk about David, how that David is talking about himself, but also talking about who Jesus is way before ever Jesus came on the scene. And so if there's anything good about the world or humanity or angels back in Hebrews 1, Jesus rises way above that. Way above that. Back to Hebrews 1. Almost done. Again, lots of quotes of Old Testament in here. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your uprightness, of your uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Just this idea that kingdoms rise and fall. We get things right. We get things wrong. We see lots of examples of that playing out in, our, in this country and in the world in general, right? There are good things in the world. There are bad things in the world. There are right things in the world. There are wrong things in the world. But how God describes Jesus' kingdom is the scepter of, of the uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. Who he is embodies who the kingdom is. Isn't that beautiful? Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, which is a quote. For you, if you want to write this later, Psalm 45, verse 10. And you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same. And your years will have no in. That's Psalm 102. And then verse 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at the, my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's Psalm 110. And so just, again, didn't have time to hit all those this morning. But you see here in verses 8 through 13 that God established Jesus' throne. And while the earth and her people will wear out like a garment. We know that, right? We're here but a moment. We're gone tomorrow. We will change. But Jesus will not. Which brings us to truth number five. The greatest change we can ever experience. The greatest change that we could ever experience it's not our football team winning the national championship as much as I would like that, right? It's not enough money in the bank account. It's not fulfillment in my job or my family. The greatest change that I could ever experience, which sets me on the road for everything else, is Jesus in his unchanging nature. It's Jesus in his unchanging nature. Because I want you to just reflect for just a moment right where you are. How different was your life five years ago? How different was it? Different, right? Different motivations, different place in life, different things going on in your world, things that were of different value. What about 10 years ago? How different was it then? What was important five years ago and 10 years ago is maybe a little different today, depending on where you are and stage of life. But here's the funny thing. We don't just have to look backward to see, understand the differences in our lives between then and now. Five years from now, our lives are going to be vastly different. And what's important will change. 
But again, back to truth number five. The greatest change we could ever experience is Jesus and his unchanging nature because as much of our lives are different yesterday, today, tomorrow, Jesus will not change. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom. So when we hear the truth of God's word, we have an opportunity to respond. And when we respond, we have an opportunity to be changed. And that's what I want to ask you. What does it mean to have a spiritual covering in a spiritless world? And it's this. The opening chapter of Hebrews begins talk, began talking about Jesus' ministry. Right? Prophetic, kingly, priestly. And it's interesting. Wow. I'm in the position I'm in today. Where I was five years ago is different. Where I'm going to be five years from now is going to be different. Jesus somehow perfectly holds all three of those identities in perfect tension. His prophetic ministry doesn't overrule his kingly or priestly, and none of the others do either. They're perfectly held in tension. And so that's where the chapter begins. The chapter ends with this idea that you and I are going to change and that we should, according to verse 14, take refuge in Jesus. And so that's the question. Where do you need change today? Fan's going to come back up. Where do you need to offer your life to him? Here's something. Because I don't know about you, because I don't know what you woke up with this morning or what we'll wake up with tomorrow. Where do you need to take refuge in him? Because we don't know what's going to happen next. But what we do know is that he is the same. Amen? Amen. Will you stand and pray with me, please? God, I'm thankful that you don't change. And God, while it seems like sometimes I change at the moment, one way I could be one way one hour and a different way the next hour, and I could be hungry or full or annoyed or upset or aggravated or loving, all the things. God, I take great hope that you are the same, always, and never in conflict with who you are and all the things that you do. And so, God, I, I know just because there's life engaged and life involved is that all of us walked in with something today that we didn't want to walk in with. And so I would ask, God, that you would, in this moment as we sing, speak to those things. And God, if we need to, to look at the mirror of ourselves, I pray that we would. We'd be courageous there. We need to change something about how we're responding to a situation, God, that we would. But most of all, God, I pray that no matter where we are on that spectrum, that we would all take refuge under who you are. Because you're the good shepherd and we hear your voice and what I know is that you call us towards you, not away. And so, God, whatever we face, let us face the things of the day in the world in a way of people who have hope. Because we do. And it's because of you. 
So speak, Lord. Let us see. It's in your name. Amen.